Our text for the message today is going to be in Acts chapter 2. So if you want to take just a moment to find uh, the second chapter of the book of Acts, and uh, we will share that and read that together in just a moment while you're finding uh, that passage. Let me take just a brief moment uh, to say uh, how thankful and grateful that uh, I am and Gwen and I, my wife and I, are to be here with you today. I know that this is really a month-long celebration and there are other guests who will be here. And um, while I love your pastor, he is a dear, dear friend. And when he let me know yesterday, or day before yesterday, I think it was actually that he had the flu. And so uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to tell him. We love him, but we sure are glad he didn't come to church today. So he didn't need to share uh, that love with us today. But uh, I do want to say to you, Mount Airy, uh, a couple of things. I want to say, first of all, thank you for being uh, the church that you are for these 125 years as a part of our South Carolina Baptist Convention and our, our larger Southern Baptist Convention. You were one of the 2,125 churches that make up our South Carolina Baptist Convention. And you're one of our leading churches. And, and I, I say that not to give you any sense of, of, of pride, uh, something to boast or be, uh, to brag about in that regard, but I do want you to know from my heart to yours that when we look at all of our 2,100 plus churches is that Mount Airy is uh, regularly and consistently uh, you're a leader because of uh, a variety of reasons, but not the least of which is uh, your giving, your sacrificial giving through the corporate program. And because you give, and because churches like you give through our corporate program, and it is my task as your executive director treasurer to make sure that those funds are handled appropriately. And, and I always like to say you don't give to the corporate program, you give through it because it goes on to support the 3,500 missionaries that we have, you have, serving all over the globe today. The North American Mission Board, you have many of the church plants that you're involved in are made possible. Those planters receive corporate program funds. Six seminaries uh, at our Southern Baptist Convention national level. And of course, all the ministries that take place here inside of South Carolina. Uh, ministry to support those 2,100 churches and three universities and a children's home and a ministry to the aging and a a newspaper, the Courier, and a foundation. And uh, all of those ministries are possible uh, because of you, Mount Airy, and thank you for your leadership. But uh, secondly, I would want to say thank you for sharing your pastor uh, and his leadership with us just a couple of years ago, 2017. He was our, our president, as you well know. And I told Keith when that term of service was over, I said, I know that your wife, Lisa, and your family and your church family at Mount Airy are going to be get, glad that they're getting him back. So I hope that you have felt that Keith is back uh, after that year of service. But we simply could not do what we do and the work that we attempt to do each, each year without leaders like your pastor. And I love him dearly, uh, not only just as a, a fellow uh, minister of the gospel, but he has become a cherished, cherished friend in, in my life and in Gwen's life as well. So thank you for sharing your pastor and others of your staff with us as well. Well, uh, today I want to talk with you a little bit on this anniversary Sunday on the kind of church that will last, the kind of church that lasts. You have been here 125 years, and if the Lord tarries his coming, and we don't know if he will or not, but should he tarry his coming, what what is it that makes a church like Mount Airy that's been here for 125 years, what, what, what might we find 
in our, in our text today that would point us towards some marks and some characteristics so that the church, any church, but even Mount Airy Church, can be the kind of church that will continue to last for generations yet to come. That will be our focus and our attention this morning. So would you, if you're physically able, would you stand in honor of our God and the reading of his inerrant, infallible word and allow me to read for us this morning. I'm going to be reading from the new King James translation of the scripture, if you're following in another translation, but I'll be reading beginning in verse 40 through the end of that second chapter. And the Bible says, and with many other words, he, that's the apostle Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And Father, once again, we thank you for this privilege that we have to live in a land where we can worship as we have this morning and gather as we are gathered this morning. And God, thank you that you have preserved for us your word. And we hold it in our hand, and we put it into our heart. And now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, and you would be our teacher, you would be our guide, you would be the one who would speak to every one of us individually, and then collectively as the church, as we gather here this morning to feast upon the truths of your word. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus, we offer it. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. If... You call Mount Airy your church home, and most of you very likely do. That means that somewhere along the way, you join the church in the various ways. I don't know all of the, if you have membership classes or various and other sundry ways that you might become a part of Mount Airy, but if I were to just go up and down each pew and row this morning and say, why did you join Mount Airy? Why are you a member here? Why do you call this your church home? We'd probably get a lot of different answers. And some of those answers might be everything from it might begin with, well, I really love the pastor. That's very often the case, and we all do love. It may be because you relate to Pastor Keith Shorter. It may be that you love the music. Oh, my goodness, we have just worshiped at the feet of Jesus this morning by that choir and other music that we have shared. It may be that you come for that. It may be because your friends or your family, there's a heritage that you're here. All of those are, are very good and valid reasons, but... I would just wonder, though, this morning, is there not something even bigger than that? Just the things that might attract us to any given local church. And sadly, there might even be some today who might even come for what I would call the, the kind of the entertainment factor. I heard a story about a little boy. His family did not go to church, but his neighbors went to church. And so his neighborhood friend invited him to go to church with them. And he had begun to sort of go from time to time. And uh, so he came home one Sunday to report to his father, who, again, was not involved in a church. And he said, well, son, said, how are you liking 
go into this church. And he said, well, Dad, he said, it's a pretty good show for a dollar. So I don't know if that, uh, that's terrible to think about the churches somewhere that you come for some entertainment value. But I, our verses in our text today, though, really remind us of a church that doesn't go back 125 years, but 2,000 years. So the, the, the church, the first New Testament church that was formed immediately after the event we call Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, after the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus, Jesus promised, you remember, he told his disciples to go and meet him in Galilee and to tarry there because then after he instructed them, they were to go back to Jerusalem and gather in that upper room where there was a great prayer meeting. And in the midst of all of that, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, came in that moment of Pentecost. And immediately after the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had promised that when he went away, that he would not leave us comfortless, but that the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete is the term, would come to walk alongside of us and to instruct us. And that same Holy Spirit is present here today, just as he was at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. But it is no accident, it is no mere coincidence that immediately upon the falling of the power of the Holy Spirit is that the first thing that happened, which we find recorded in Acts chapter 2, is the first sermon was preached. The apostle Peter begins to preach. You can read that entire sermon beginning in verse 14. We won't do that this morning. But I might encourage you, go back home and in your quiet time this week, maybe just read the first sermon preached in the first church under the power of the, the freshly coming anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. And he preached a powerful message. And so I think we find some, some instruction even in the fact that in this first church that was birthed, the Pentecostal New Testament church, we begin to find these principles that I believe can help us and guide us so that we, again, if the Lord tarries his coming, we will continue to be the kind of church that will last for the generations yet to be born and yet to come. And so what's the first one? Well, the first thing is simply that, is that the kind of church that lasts is going to be a place where the gospel is clearly preached. The gospel is clearly preached. When you go back and look in detail to the uh, sermon that Peter, the Apostle Peter preached, you'll notice that it was couched in Old Testament text. He quotes from the book of Joel. He quotes two different passages from two different places in Psalm, the 110th Psalm and the 16th Psalm. And he brings this notion of gospel preaching that basically had, I think, three, three kind of things that go along with biblical preaching that's mirrored in what Peter preached. Number one, it was obviously, again, biblical. It was clearly couched in the Scripture, the authority of the Scripture. And our preaching today, just like 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, when Paul says, I didn't come just to baptize, baptize baptizing is important, but he said, I came to preach the gospel. Romans chapter 10 you know that verse in 14 and 15. It's how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without what a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they 
are sent. The preaching of the word of God is central to the message and to the ministry of a church that's going to last. But that preaching that is biblical should also add these two things. It needs to be practical and it needs to be personal. I I find it interesting that when Peter preached this great Pentecostal sermon that we have recorded here, back up in verse 37, as soon as those first congregants heard the authority of the word of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, they asked this piercing question, men and brethren, what then shall we do? In other words, they were giving the invitation for themselves, weren't they? They were saying that this preaching of the authoritative word of God has found a resting place in my heart. You know, it is as current and relevant today as it happened to be 2,000 years ago. I heard on the television this week with all of the coronavirus, for example, I, I, maybe you, like me, I'd been wondering, where did they come up with the name? You know, it's the COVID-19, I know we have all the technical terms, but where did the corona came from? And they answered it on a news report. If you've seen the picture of the actual cell that would be the virus that is causing all of this uh, trauma, if you will, around the world, it has sort of a glow around the edge. Have you seen the picture? And that glow, they're calling it the corona because the word corona is really from a a root of a word that means crown. And it looks like a crown, sort of a glowing crown around that cell. And I, I just thought to myself, isn't God good that he's even built into the visible what we can see as the corona? Because let me tell you what, the crown of thorns that sat upon Jesus' head on the cross is the same answer for today's issue as it was 2,000 years ago. And so let's take the coronavirus, and when somebody talks about it, it says, well, let me show you a picture. You know why they call it corona? There's a crown. Let me tell you about another crown that was worn by my Savior, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, who has come to save and set you free and give you peace no matter what storm may come. I mean, think about that. God has given us, in his word, practical application for the personal preaching of the truth of God's inerrant word. A church that will last is going to stand upon the word of God. You are blessed, Mount Airy, you already know this. You have a pastor who stands in this pulpit week after week after week and delivers to you, whether it's in season or out, whether it's popular or not. And by the way, it's not very popular these days. But just because it isn't popular doesn't mean that it is not true. And the churches that will stand upon the authority of the Scripture will be the church that will last into the future. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is a church that will last going to be a truth that is uh, preaching the Word of God, but you're also going to see lives gloriously transformed by the gospel that is preached. A place where people are gloriously saved. Notice, if you will, in our text in verse 41, what happened? It said, after many other words, Peter shared and exhorted. And by the way, when he said, be saved from this perverse generation, that wasn't exactly real good, feel good preaching, was not He cut to the chase of the matter. This is a crooked and perverse generation. And watch what happened. Then those who gladly received his word, were baptized. And on that day, 
about 3,000 souls were added to them. Get that picture for a moment. 3,000 people in one day coming to know Christ. Now, I grew up in an era, as many of you did, where we used to, you know, watch, and we can still watch the Billy Graham crusade. Do you remember those pictures? Where large stadiums would be filled. I mean, hundreds, often thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people would gather, and Dr. Graham would, would preach a message. And I remember as a young preacher boy, when I was just getting started, I used to hear Dr. Graham preach, and I would think to myself, well, I could preach that. You know, I mean, I, that's, that's so simple. And you just, he'd just stand up there and say, the Bible says, the Bible says, and the Bible says, and give the invitation. And those aisles would begin to fill up, and throngs and thousands of people would respond. I, I get a little mental picture that perhaps that might be a little bit of what it looked like on the day of Pentecost, when Peter, Peter preached and 3,000 people we're saved. I guess I have this pastoral dream that most of us pastors have. None of, few of us will ever get to see something like that, what Dr. Graham saw in his day in age. But I, I've just wondered, you know, I, I am a football fan for you Clemson folks. I'm sorry, I'm an Alabama fan. I was just born with crimson blood. I can't help it, you know. It just worked out that way in my life. But, you know, after a ball game, what happens? They, they douse the coach often, you know, they win the championship with Gatorade, and they sometimes carry them off on, on their shoulders and make this really, you know, tear down the goalpost or whatever. Well, I don't know if, but if Brother Keith preaches one Sunday and 3,000 people get saved, I think y'all ought to douse him with Gatorade. I think y'all could carry him out on your shoulder to the parking lot, but don't tear up the pulpit, just to stop at that point. Don't, don't go that far. But it's kind of like the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl or that. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because the Word of God is powerful and active. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts and divides even between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Oh, when the Word of God is preached boldly and biblically, people will be saved gloriously. That's the kind of church that's going to last no matter what the winds of our times might bring today or in the future. But I want to see one third thing, a final thing, that really is a mark. And this is the real meat of the rest of this passage. I wish we had time to look at every single point. We don't, but I just want to suggest a few to you. Because really, the kind of church that's going to last out into the future is also going to be a church, a place where people are spiritually connected, spiritually connected. I'd like to think that really if I were to do that interview this morning and say, what is it that brought you to Mount Airy? What is it that keeps you at Mount Airy? That it might really be kind of something that would fall in this category of what I'm calling being spiritually connected. Notice a few of the, the marks of that New Testament church where they were spiritually connected. First of all, they studied the Word of God together. Now, we call it Sunday school, or we call it Bible study fellowship, or small groups, all kinds of terms that we can use, but there is such value in getting together with other believers to study the Word of God, and I love the way it's even outlined here in verse 42. They continued, notice this, steadfastly. That word steadfastly means faithfully, regularly, not when they felt like it, not just occasionally, 
but they steadfastly, regularly, they got together and they studied, if you will, the apostles' doctrine, the teaching. And there is a, a lack of the teaching of the doctrines of our faith today. And if we want to reach the next generation, we have to pass along not just the, not just the feeling that we have. I mean, there is a, a pathos, an emotion, if you will, about being a believer. But there must be the very rock solid, these things we believe and stand upon. That's why the teaching of the Word of God, the doctrines of the Word of God are so very critical. The church that will last will be the church that regularly gathers to study the Word of God. But also, not just study together, but watch this. They enjoyed being together. There was fellowship. Now, we've kind of weakened that word fellowship to think that it's just we gather and we have you know, some refreshments or have a meal together. We Baptists you know, are notorious about loving to gather for meals, and there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But that word fellowship, in, in the original text, and you've heard this term, it's the Greek term koinonia, and that word koinonia means there's something going beyond the surface level. There's more than just, hi, how are you today? And now we can't even shake hands, we just kind of, you know, have to elbow bump, I guess. It's more than an elbow bump, and hi, I'm glad to see you this morning. There's a connection, there's a fellowship. I told the earlier crowd, uh, congregation this morning, the earlier service, that I love about Mount Airy, that you're active in mission work all over the world. And that's because of the leadership of your pastor and your staff. And I was one of those kind of pastors. We've been blessed to have mission points all over the world, still do this very day. But the, if you've ever been on a mission trip, particularly out of the country, this has probably happened to you, because it's happened to me multiple times. You get on an airplane, you fly somewhere, you land, you meet people you've never met, maybe you've heard about them, you may know their names, you may know the pastor's name, but you don't really know them. Matter of fact, most of the time when we get there, we don't even speak the same language. We have to have an interpreter, Are you with me? And you get off the plane, and you begin to converse with the pastor and the leaders and the people in that church, and within literally seconds, there is a bond in the spirit, and you felt like you've known these people your whole life. Are you with me? Has that ever happened to you? You know what that is? Koinonia. That's fellowship. There is a togetherness in the people of God because of the Spirit of God, and that was reflected in this first century Christian church. They enjoyed being together. And so I, I, I didn't say this the first session, so let me say it here. I travel all over the state. I'm usually in a different church every Sunday most Sundays I'm preaching somewhere, and, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I have driven onto the parking lot of churches, and before anybody has even welcomed me, and sometimes they don't welcome me at all, that's usually an indication, but I have driven on the parking lot, and before I get out of my car and enter the church, I can tell if there is a broken fellowship going on there. I'm, I'm telling you. And I, I, I rarely know the story in advance. But you know why? Because there's a broken fellowship. You can feel the tension in the air if there is a broken fellowship. I'm glad to know. I didn't feel that way at Mount Airy. And I'm glad to know that before we got in here today, we were greeted, you know, the instant we came in here, I could feel the fellowship. That is a sweet indicator 
of the kind of church that's going to last. They love being together. And they didn't just get together, they prayed together. Look at verse 42. And continued in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Paul Bilheimer wrote a book years ago, Destined for the Throne. And there's a quote in there that has arrested my attention for these years since I first read that little book on prayer. But he said this, he said, Any church that does not have a regular, ongoing, systematic program of prayer is on a religious treadmill. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? I have a stair stepper at my house, and I I get on it from time to time. I'd like to say I do it every day, but I, I, I get on it occasionally. I don't like that thing. You know why? I can work and work and do steps and sweat and do the whole program, and when I'm finished, I'm right where I started. I hadn't gone anywhere. I'd much rather say to Gwen, hey, it's kind of pretty out today. Let's go take a walk. Let's exercise. We can feel like we're going somewhere. Well, I think you get, the, you get where I'm going with that, is that if we don't have an ongoing prayer element in our church, it's kind of religious exercise, but we're not going anywhere. And according to what we read in Acts chapter 2, it's that kind of church where they prayed together. And also, they took care of one another. They ministered to the needs of each other. And that was indicated by the sweetness of their time of worship together. I've really worshipped the Lord here today. And I'm sure when Gwen and I get in the car, we'll, we'll probably debrief about what we've experienced through the music and through the fellowship of this congregation. And that, that's good. It's a church that doesn't just get together for the sake of getting together, but even in the midst of this crisis, a lot of churches chose not to work. That's, I mean, we, we respect that decision that they've made, but as we have gathered here today, we have come not just to be together, we have come to be together with the Lord together. That is worship. And then finally, they reached out to others together. They did evangelism together. They understood that this fellowship was not to be kept inside the walls of these church, of any church building. And, and so you do know that the real mission field is out there. It may be in Boston, it may be in Taiwan, it may be in China, but it's also right across the street as well. And that's why Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 reminds us that there are four arenas. After this, what is this? The Pentecost. After the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said, after this, you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That Great Commission, we don't call that the Great Commission. Great Commission is Matthew 28. But it was the great empowerment to do the Great Commission. It's given to every one of us. That's why verse 47 in this Bible that I just read was possible. And the Lord added, if you got your Bible still open, what's the next word? How often? Daily, such as those who were being saved. Which simply means that the invitation on Sunday morning is just the celebration and the time to, here's what God's been doing all week when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're playing golf or tennis or hunting or whatever it is that you do or going to ball games, is that while we are the church scattered out there, When we become the church gathered in here, we're going to get to celebrate how God has used every single one of us 
evangelistically, to touch our neighbors, our family, our friends. God's put someone in your realm of responsibility. I love your who's the one emphasis back there. I have my who's your one card right here that I carry in my Bible. And uh, I cheated. I actually have expanded mine. I have five. I, I've, I've kind of made a whole card. There's my who's your one, but I've got who's your five right there. And I pray for them regularly as I have my quiet time and have shared the gospel with everybody on my who's my five list. I don't do that because I'm a pastor and because I'm the state executive director. I do that because I'm a Christian. I do that because God's commanded me. He's commanded you. And he commands every church to reach out to others together. That's the kind of church, dear friends, that is going to last for the future. Father, take this time of instruction around your word. And now, Father, help each of us to hear what the Spirit would have each of us say and respond in such a way that we will know that we are being obedient to what you're speaking to us this morning. And it may very well be there's someone here this morning who has never received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Lord, today, would they come to acknowledge that without Jesus there is no hope of them ever obtaining eternal life. Just as those first people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, when they heard the word of God, they cried out and said, what must we do? And then Peter told them, repent of your sins and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so God, take this invitation and use it perhaps in someone's life that way. If there are other decisions that need to be made, People have not been obedient in that next step, that first step of obedience, baptism, which we saw outlined in our text today. After they received and believed, they were baptized as a sign and as a symbol of their identity with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Maybe somebody today needs to commit to take that step of obedience. Others might be being called to missions and to ministry. Others might need to join this church. Whatever the need might be, speak to human hearts and receive us as we are obedient today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.